please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, now as we look into your word, Father, I can't help but reflect on the, the song we sang earlier. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Father, we all need you. Father, I pray particularly this morning that you give me the words, Father, that you calm my spirit, help me to, to articulate your truth. Father, I pray that we put aside our cares and concerns and we see only Jesus. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our topic this morning is in what do you boast? Boasting. Now, that's a loaded word. And when we think of it, we think of negative connotations that go with boasting. It means to puff up oneself in speech or to speak of or assert with excessive pride. It means to possess or often call attention to something. In short, it means to brag. When we boast, we brag. And we've seen a lot of boasting recently. Politicians who boast in their wisdom that they have the answer to all our problems. An Asian nation that boasts that its powerful military will destroy the United States. Banks and businesses that are too big and too rich to fail. Now, boasting can also mean to glory or exult in something. Sports fans boast about their teams and its players. And some people take particular joy in their houses or their cars. They derive a sense of self-worth from owning these things. Some exult in their abilities to fix things, to build things, or to handle crisis situations. Now yet, boasting can also have a proper and justifiable pride. For example, Hollister boasts an overall temperate climate. A school boasts its students' high academic achievements. Now, during my daily Bible reading, I came upon this section, and it really struck a chord with me. It moved me so much that I told Pastor John my desire to preach these, uh, these verses. And of course, to preach something, you must study it and understand its application for your life. And that's what I want to share with you today, what I've learned by studying this and, and the application. So let's look at our text. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord... Let, the wise man boast in his, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now, Jeremiah being an Old Testament book and a, one of the major prophets, we sometimes don't look at how it applies to our lives today. So I want to set some context and you can see how this is very appropriate for what we're going through today. Jeremiah was both a priest and a, a prophet and his book deals with or details God's indictment of Judah's sin, its coming invasion and siege and its ultimate destruction. Now, the section comprising Jeremiah chapter 7 through 10 records the idolatry, unfaithfulness, and foolishness of the people. And it was given during the time of Jehoiakim's reign. Now, Jehoiakim was not a good king. According to 2 Kings 23, 36, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all his fathers had done. 
God declares that calamity will befall Judah. He admonishes them not to listen to the deceitful words of the false prophets who mistakenly claim that no harm will befall Judah because the temple of the Lord is there. Jeremiah tells the people instead to listen to what the Lord says, that he will let them stay in Judah if they change their ways. They're not to oppress the sojourner or the fatherless or the widow. They're not to shed innocent blood or to follow false gods. He asked them if they would lie, cheat, steal, murder, commit adultery, engage in idol worship, and yet assume that God will protect them just because they go into the temple. Now, right away, there's an application for us. How many of us attend church on Sunday and feel we have our spiritual fix for the week? We spend 90 minutes singing a few songs, bowing our heads, listening to a message, but in reality, we can't wait to go home. We want to go turn on that ball game. We want to go visit family or friends. We want to go to the mall or go to the beach. And during the week, we tend to forget who it was that purchased us. We give in to various temptations. We spend our time, our money, our attention on things of the flesh, not of the spirit. But because we go to church once or twice a month, and certainly on Easter and around Christmas, we somehow think that God will preserve us, just like the people of Judah. God points out how the whole community was involved in idolatry. The children gathered the wood, the fathers kindled the fire, the mothers kneaded the dough, and all of this was to prepare a sacrifice to a false god. And as a nation, as a state, as a community, we remove God from our equations. We don't honor marriage as he created it. We don't respect life as he gives it. We worship the creation and not the creator. And we indoctrinate society. And we indeed, we indoctrinate our children in the ways of sin. Through schools, television and movies, music, books and magazines, internet and social media. And yet somehow, Americans think that through all this we'll be protected by God if we think there is a God, whoever he or she might be. This was the state of Judah. And it's no different for us today. It's easy to cast stones at them, but we too live in glass houses. In Psalm 69, 5, David wrote, O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. So God tells Jeremiah to warn Judah, but he says, they will not listen to you. And you know the symptoms of that. You don't feel like going to church. You don't want to go to your community group. You just can't seem to get into the word. It's kind of like a spiritual malaise. And the people of Judah have fallen for the deceit of Satan. They thought they were wise, but all along they ignored the wisdom of God. Their prophets and their priests did not give them the truth, but fed them that false sense of security. How much of that do we see today? How many are deceived by the prosperity gospel, which isn't a true gospel at all? The false theology of name it and claim it. They say that God wants you to be happy, and thousands, no millions, fall for it. And so they live their lives pursuing their idols of power and wealth. How many are deceived by those who deliver a salvation of works, which isn't a true salvation? Just do these things. Just act this way. 
And so they lived their lives pursuing a security of their own making. Jeremiah grieves for Judah. To the rhetorical question of why the land is ruined and laid waste, God answers, because they have forsaken my law that I have set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the bales as their fathers taught them. And it was against this backdrop then we find Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. See, we in 21st century AD are no different than those in 6th century BC. The words of the Lord to Judah apply to us today. So let's look and see what God is telling us. My first point is the folly of human wisdom. The folly of human wisdom. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Now today we're beset by bright minds. We constantly have people talking about science and how wonderful pure science is. There's man-caused global warming, or no, it's, now it's climate change. But there's science to back that up. The theory of evolution is, is settled for all of us, right? It's a settled, it's a done deal. And if you don't believe in these things, if you deny climate change, if you deny evolution, well, you're anti-science. Psychologists tell us that despite the physical body you were given at birth, it's not what you are, but how you feel that determines your gender. So if you feel you're something different, you are. And they tell us it's unhealthy to not be true to yourself. Social justice advocates for decriminalizing the convicted under the false assurance that society is going to be safer. All the while, they condemn the innocent unborn. And then there's the philosophers. Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Sigmund Freud and his psychoanalysis. Friedrich Nietzsche, God is dead. Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. And so on, and so on, and so on. And then there's the postmodernists. You've got to like these guys. We can't really know the truth. Your reality might not be my reality, so how can we really know anything at all anyway? This is what we call wisdom and understanding. Now, beginning in the Garden of Eden, man decided that he knows better than God and that he can do just fine making his own decisions. And how's that worked out for everyone? Well, we don't have time this morning to talk about all the wars in history or the tyrants and the genocides or the sicknesses and diseases that are spread by inappropriate behavior of the lives lost because of corruption when buildings are made and infrastructures fail due to shoddy and workmanship and materials. We don't talk about man's starvation due to greed. And I could go on and on and on. Humans, by virtue of our natures, turn our backs on God. On our own, we don't seek Him. And even though His attributes are plain and clearly perceived, we do not acknowledge Him. Romans 1.21 says that, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then listen to the next verse. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Sin is deceptive. It causes us to think we're righteous when in fact we're not. It darkens our ability to see and to reason. 
And sadly, there are even those in the church who have become just as foolish. In their zeal to be relevant or to, to conform to the standards of the common culture, they dismiss the plain truths of the Bible in order to reconcile it with man's wisdom. We'll take, for example, those who deny a six-day literal creation. They instead want to integrate old earth theory. They want to integrate evolution. We see this in those who dismiss the teachings of Paul when it comes to the roles of men and women in the church. They just say that he was speaking to a, a particular culture and, and it wasn't relevant to today. It's all biases back from the old days. We see this in those who embrace same-sex relationships. They go so far as to reinterpret the relationship between Jonathan and David and to suggest that there is something perverse about it. The people in Jeremiah's day were misled by false prophets, and they thought they would be safe from the oncoming onslaught. They put their trust in human wisdom. Now, Solomon had a lot to say about wisdom, and with good cause. Recall from 1 Kings 3 how the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, and he told him, ask what you want. And you know the story. Solomon asked for an understanding mind to govern the people, that he may discern between good and evil. And God granted Solomon's request, giving him a wise and discerning mind so that none like him has been before him, and none like him shall arise after him. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all other men. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. And we know that the book of Proverbs is largely penned by Solomon. Solomon also wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And you know the refrain from this book. It's familiar to you. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Well, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon details the pursuit of the pleasure apart from God, declaring that it's all in vain. And among the things that Solomon pursued to find pleasure was wisdom. He thought that maybe wisdom gave him pleasure. So in Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 17, he reports on, on what he learned when pursuing wisdom. Listen to what he says, Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes, his eyes in his head, and the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise... As of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. Pursuing and relying on human wisdom is nothing but an empty and ultimately unsatisfying exercise in futility. And it's human wisdom that got us into this mess we're in today. But it's the wisdom of God that brings us out. Listen to what Solomon says in 
Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. And listen carefully, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, you're familiar with this passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be wise, not in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. What exactly is this wisdom of God? Well, 1 Corinthians 1, 19 through 24 answers that question for us. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seeks wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God, as if God were all foolish, is wiser than men. Our next point is the weakness of human might. The weakness of human might. In Jeremiah 9.23, God says, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Now, time and again, Israel was really impressed with the might of its enemies and its allies. While captive in Egypt, the Lord delivered Israel from the hand of Pharaoh, you remember, through demonstrating all the plagues that were going on. Yet when they had their backs against the Red Sea and Pharaoh was closing in on them in hot pursuit, they panicked. And rather than trust God, they condemned Moses and believed they were all about to die. But God saved them. And you know the story, the parting of the Red Sea and the drowning of the Egyptian army, how Israel crossed all the way in safety. But when Pharaoh and his chariots came across, all of them were wiped out. And then while on the verge of entering the promised land, Israel once again froze in fear because the scouts reports that there were giants there. There were big people. And they didn't trust God. All they had to do was believe. But they let the power of their enemies influence them. And they rebelled against God. Because of this, that generation was condemned to die in the desert. And today, everyone who does not put his faith in Christ is likewise condemned to die. Yet again, Israel froze in the face of might. This time before the Philistine warrior Goliath. 
We read, and when Saul and Israel heard the words of Goliath, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Time and again, Israel and Judah turned to the might of men to deliver them. God told them not to fear when they saw horses and chariots arrayed against them because he would be fighting for them. But nonetheless, they amassed horses and they amassed chariots. Solomon had 40,000 stalls for horses for his chariots. Judah's king Ahaz called on the king of Assyria to rescue him when he was facing the armies of Syria and Israel when they attacked him. And yet Israel and Judah had plenty of examples of when God came to their rescue and he delivered them from their enemies. He went before Joshua in the battle of Jericho. He went before David from his enemies and, or when he faces enemies with, from Saul and other countries. He saved Hezekiah in Jerusalem from the Assyrians. But we have to remember that strength, like wisdom, comes from the Lord. It's too easy to rely on our own strength and to think that we're the cause of this instead of relying on God. And this was what God wanted to prevent when he called Gideon to lead Israel in the war against the Midianites. You recall that Gideon started off with 32,000 soldiers. God told him to send away those that were afraid. And immediately 22,000 of them left. And that left him with 10,000. God said 10,000 is too many. So he gave Gideon directions for paring down the number even more. And you recall about how they drank from the river. Gideon ended up with 300 soldiers. 32,300. And Israel prevailed against Midian. And then there's the account of Samson. Now Samson was raised in Nazarite. You'll recall from number six that when someone, a man or a woman, took the vow of a Nazarite, he or she was not to drink wine, strong drink, or any juice made from grapes. It was not to eat grapes, whether fresh or dried, or anything from a grapevine. And this includes the seeds and the skins of grapes, no grapes at all. Not to touch a dead body, and not to take a razor to or cut his or her hair. But we know that Samson violated these restrictions. Judges 14, we read how he scooped honey from a swarm of bees that was in the carcass of a lion. So he touched a dead body. In Judges 16, we read how he grew fond of Delilah and eventually revealing to her that he would lose his strength if he cut his hair. And that's what happened. We know the story. See, it wasn't the Nazarite vow that gave Samson his strength. He wasn't made strong because of his hair. It was the Spirit of God coming over him. When he tore a lion in pieces with his bare hands, it was after the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. When he freed himself from his bonds and killed 1,000 Philistines, it was after the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. But after his hair was cut, he thought he would free himself as he did before, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson boasted in his own strength, and in reality, he had none. In his final act, when he was captive in the Philistines and he's chained between a couple pillars in a house, he prayed to God to restore his strength just one more time. And he was able to take down those pillars. And as the house came down and killed Samson, it also killed 3,000 Philistines, more than he had killed in his life. Now, in contrast to 
to Samson, consider David, a man after God's own heart. He was not afraid when facing Goliath. And this little shepherd boy rightly divined that the battle wasn't between men and armies and human things. It was between God and Satan. He was challenging the armies of the Lord. The enemy was challenging God himself. And David offered to take on the giant, declaring that God would deliver him. And you know the story of what happened. And David got it right. In Ephesians 6.10, we are told to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Why is that? Because as David noted, the warfare we face is not about human strength or human battles. No, we're in a war against much more powerful forces. In Ephesians 6.12, we read, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Still tempted to boast on your own strength? Now take a lesson from Israel, once again from Numbers 14. When they were told they couldn't go into the promised land, they confessed their sin and they decided, we'll go up and take it now. We're ready to go, God. Let's go in and do it. Remember what happened? Moses told them, don't go. Don't do that. Because the Lord was not among them, lest they be struck down before their enemies. They didn't listen. And they were roundly defeated. See, they were relying then on their own strength. Moses had told them, God is not with you on this one. Our human strength is merely weakness in the face of insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. But you see, we don't have to rely on our puny human strength. The grace of God, who went before Joshua and Gideon, who delivered Samson, or David and Goliath, who gave Samson strength, the grace of that God is made perfect in our weakness. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says that the weakness of God as if God had any weakness, is stronger than men. Now, so far we have seen the folly of human wisdom and the weakness of human strength. Next is the poverty of human wealth. The poverty of human wealth. In addition to wisdom and might, God says, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Now, see, we live in a country that's just teeming with wealth. Our standard of living in the United States is higher than most other countries. And we live in one of the most expensive states in the Union. And we live in one of the most expensive areas of that most expensive state. The median price of a house in Silicon Valley has risen to about $800,000. And while we don't live in Silicon Valley, many of us work there and commute there. And the prices of houses in that area affect the prices of houses in our area. And so we have to ask, is it any wonder that they're building houses like mad here? Because they're expensive. Because it costs a lot to live in this area. And Americans place a high value on owning things. We have smartphones, smart TVs, smart homes. We, have, we want cars with internet connectivity and all manner of recreational vehicles. We want boats, we want motorcycles, we want RVs, we want all kinds of classic cars. Billionaire Malcolm Forbes once said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Someone else rightly pointed out that he who dies with the most toys still dies. 
Consider what Jesus said about wealth. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He told the parable of the rich man whose land produced plentifully. He had so many crops that he had no place to store them. He was running out of room. So he decides he's going to tear down his barns, tear down his storehouses, build larger ones, and store up all this for the future. Enough to take care of himself for many, many years. He said that he would then take it easy. He would relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He'd enjoy himself, take a life of ease because he's trusting in the strength of his possessions and all that he has. Do you remember what happened? God said, you fool. This night, your soul will be required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Just as Solomon makes the same thing. It's going to go on to somebody else. You've worked and you labored for possessions, and why? Your life is going to run out. Jesus said, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Boasting about possessions, frankly, is idolatry. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, we read, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. There are many other examples of the futility of wealth. Jesus told the example of the rich man and Lazarus. You recall that the rich man had a life of ease and Lazarus was a poor beggar? But when it came to eternity, it was the rich man who suffered. And Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. Accumulating things, on wealth, uh, things of wealth on earth is just futile. It's fruitless. There's a better way. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this is not to say that it's wrong to have possessions, but the question is not what you have, but what is your attitude about what you have? Not what you have, but what is your attitude about what you have? Recall the story of the rich young man who was grieved when Jesus told him to sell all that he had and give it to the poor. He did not want to give up his prized possessions just in order to be righteous. He had a lot of stuff. And you remember how Jesus told the disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's because they boast in their possessions. And that's where their pride is taken up. If you're given to boasting about your possessions, you have made them an idol. Wisdom, might, possessions, these are not worth boasting about. But there is something else. And this takes us to Jeremiah 9.24 and the next point. The greatness of God. The greatness of God. 
Verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God tells us that if we're to boast, we're to boast in him. Now recall, we're not to boast about our wisdom. So when we boast that we understand and know God, we're to boast about him, not us. And to help you understand this, this concept, think about what you know about God. Well, you know that he exists. You know that he's the creator of everything. You know of his many attributes. But how do you know this? How do you know that he exists? How do you know that he created everything? How do you know his attributes? Is it because you're so wise? Is it because you're special, because you've done something? Nope. You know about God because he revealed himself. He told you about himself. You know about God through the world he created by looking at it. You know about God through the Bible that he inspired. Now, we don't know everything there is to know about God. How can our finite minds comprehend an infinite God? It doesn't work. And while we can't know everything... We can't possibly understand everything there is to know about him. We do know everything we need to know about him. And that's what God has given us. Everything we need to know about him. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now, in case you're tempted to think you know everything about God, that you got this all dialed in, I invite you to go read Job 38 through 42. And if you haven't read that passage, go home and do that today. And ask yourself if you really know everything about God or understand God. That's probably one of the, to me, it's one of the most humbling sections in the Bible. And I read that with nothing but awe over God. Job 38 through 42. Go home and read that. In case you're tempted, or while we don't know that there is all there is to know about God, I said we can know all we need to know about God. Boast in God's steadfast love is what he tells us. In the Ten Commandments in Exodus, he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Psalm 108.3 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And what does God's steadfast love look like? Romans 8.38 and 39 tells us, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's steadfast love, that's worth boasting about. Boast in God's justice because it's abounding. Job 37, 23, he is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Colossians 3, 25 tells us, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. God is an impartial judge. 
God's justice is foundational. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And God gives justice to those in need. Psalm 103, 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. See, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. No one gets away with it. All too often we demand justice. We want something to be done. But the perfect judge, the one who has perfect justice, tells us that no one gets away with it. Everyone answers for his sin. All sin, every sin from the beginning of time to the end of humanity, to the second coming, all sin is accounted for. Not one sin is unaccounted for. And that's amazing when you think about it. Only God could exact that type of justice. In the world of lawlessness, God's justice is worth boasting about. Boast in God's righteousness. It's part of his character. Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. His righteousness is beyond our ability to calculate. Psalm 71, 15, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. God's righteousness is eternal. Psalm 111, 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. God's righteousness is exhibited in his ways. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. A righteous God who loves and practices righteousness, that's worth boasting about. And then, boast in Christ. Boast in Christ. He is the manifestation of God's steadfast love toward you. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There was and is no greater act of love. John 15, 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And John 10 through 14 through 18 says, he did this willingly. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Jesus willingly laid down his life. He satisfied God's perfect judgment on your behalf. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he sent aside, nailing it to the cross. God's justice was served at the cross of Christ. 
Isaiah 53, 5 tells us, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And it is through the righteousness of Christ that we are made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21 says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The steadfast love of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, all in Christ. Christ is worth boasting about. There's plenty of boasting on the earth, but really to what end? Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 9.11, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. So we boast in things that in the end are vain and inconsequential. Instead, boast in God. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I can't end without saying a, a word about false boasting. Just because you're here today or listening to my voice, it does not mean that you are saved. You're not saved by your own works or your own deeds. Just like Judah, attending church or listening to sermons does not save you any more than it saves the people of Judah. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 13, 22 through 27. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Don't think you can boast about a Lord you don't know and who does not know you. Place your faith in Christ and in him alone for salvation. And if you haven't done that, well, please talk to me or talk to Pastor Steve or... Talk to one of our deacons. Talk to William or talk to Lloyd. You see, we would love to boast to you about the Lord. <laughs>